Thank you very much. Appreciate your prayers this morning. Um, so we've come to a part of our text where we there's actually two parts. Just as we had the Sabbath and the Feast of Unleavened Bread together, they're kind of coupled with each other. We have now this new thing that kind of overlaps um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then extends to 50 days later. And we're familiar with the term Pentecost because we hear about that in Acts, right? And this is kind of the foundation or the basis of Pentecost that we're talking about today. But we're talking about just the first part of that coupling today, which is first fruits. When we talk about first fruits, that is a term that we have often used. And I, and I know that in many cases, at least in my experience, it was uh, connected to or made equivalent to uh, giving a tithe and offering. I have learned since that that is not really the connection that that's related, but it's not the same thing. And so I want to talk today about the principle of first fruits, and I'm sorry that this isn't quite right. This is uh, falling down here. I want to talk about the principle of first fruits because there's something special about it that is not just as simple as giving of our tithes and offerings. And there's something, I think, encouraging as well as exhorting in this today. Now, related to the idea of giving to the Lord and, and uh, expecting blessing from the Lord, which is what we see in the first fruits, I remember a conversation with my father when I was young, when I was in my uh, teen years, and uh, just in the car with my dad, and I was thinking through these things. I was reading, um, I was reading Scripture and, um, and had come through uh, Leviticus and saw the instructions uh, for uh, giving to the Lord and the, tithe and the tithe and offering and things like that. And my dad was in ministry, full-time pastor, and, um, and also a Bible college professor. And so I asked him uh, some questions about that. I asked about the role of Levites and priests and pastors today and so on and how it relates to those things. And, um, and talked about, you know, also I was getting my first job, so I asked him, well, so... If, we're going, if we calculate a percentage, if that's what we're going to do, even though the tithe isn't explicitly taught in, this, in the same way in the New Testament, giving is, and we'll see that first fruits is kind of an enduring principle. But so I asked my dad, if, if, if I'm going to calculate on that, what should I calculate on? Because today we have withholdings, right? <laughs> and when we have a wage comes along, and we have our gross income, and then we have the net income after all of the taxes. And, and so I asked my dad, you know, which part do I calculate on? And it's interesting, my father's response was, on which portion do you want God to bless you? Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> That's not exactly a biblical rule, but it's a good thought, isn't it? Just to, to think, uh, how do we hold the things that we possess? Are we being stingy before God? We're going to see that the first fruits kind of tests the uh, follower of God's faith in the way that they respond to God with the things He's given them. So I'll call your attention to Leviticus chapter 23, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 14, is the part that refers particularly to the first fruits in the life of the Israelites. There's an annual event actually, that is laid out for us here in this text. We want to try to look today at what the, what the significance of that was for them and what we might draw from it today. 
So let's read the text first, and then we'll make some observations. Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 14, uh, we see each section laid out this way. The Lord spoke to Moses, so that kind of gives us a natural division in the text. We know that this is a new portion of text, a new bit of instruction, a new subtopic. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest. So this is a forward-looking command, right? This is not something that God actually is expecting them to do whilst they are wandering the wilderness, but it is part of the law code that he is establishing for them as a nation. And so he says, when this time comes, and the assumption is it is going to come, I am going to be faithful and deliver you to the promised land. So when, not if, when you come to the promised land and you reap your first harvest... You shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. All right, so as I mentioned, this is, this is part of the context of, uh, this is the sequence of the feast days that God gave to Israel. And uh, the first thing was the Sabbath, right? That's the weekly holy day. The next thing then was the Passover, which is followed immediately by the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now we have this first fruits event, which we find out is actually overlapping with that feast of unleavened bread, that week. Now, if you recall, the Sabbath uh, would be, or rather the Passover would be on a Sabbath, and so that would be, in our way of thinking, a Friday night to a Saturday night. But then, in the case of the Passover followed by the feast of unleavened bread, The Feast of Unleavened Bread then begins the next day, and so that first day of the week following is also a Sabbath. On this special occasion, they have two Sabbaths in a row. They have the Passover Sabbath, and then the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a Sabbath, because remember, Sabbath doesn't mean a particular day. It means a day of stopping regular work and resting and worshiping. So we have what would be for us a Sunday, would be the beginning of that week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that would be a Sabbath. Then they have the ongoing week during which it's still kind of a a holy day. They're offering up burnt offerings every day, and it's acknowledged as as an important week. But they could do some of the regular functional things during that time that they needed to do. And then at the end of that would be another Sabbath. And so it's couched that way. Well, now we come to this text here, and we have the the first sheaf, the first uh, omer you might have in your text there, which is kind of the measurement of of the sheaf that would be that would be collected. 
that is to be offered up to the Lord as a first fruits offering. Well, so this takes place, this, this, the Passover and this festival and everything takes place uh, in the month of Nisan by their calendar, which puts it, it changes a little bit. It's not the same as our calendar, so it ends, ends up being somewhere in the March and April area. You know how our Easter doesn't always fall on exactly the same date or the same Sunday every, every year? It's kind of related to that. It kind of shifts according to a different calendar. And so this is that time of year. So this is the barley harvest for the Israelites. The very first harvest of the year was the barley. And so this first sheaf that was gathered, now this is the way tradition developed because we don't have every detail of how this is carried out in the Old Testament text, but we have ancient traditional records of, of how this was done throughout the ages for the Israelites. And so uh, what came to be at least the ceremony was that a contingency of at least three priests would go out from the temple in Jerusalem, and they would go out into the nearest barley field, and they would use the sickle and, and cut and gather this, this sheaf, and people would come from all over to witness the event. Many people had already gathered because of the Passover and the, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Many wanted to be in Jerusalem at that time, but but also what follows later with the, the Pentecost was a time that, that all the men were supposed to come to Israel. It was one of the, the times when they all traveled from far and wide to come. And this kind of began the count of the 50 days that led to that event. So many have already gathered. So people come out to witness this event of the harvesting of the very first sheaf of the very first harvest of the year, the barley harvest. And so then these priests accompanied by all the entourage, then go back into the temple. And this is given over to the high priest who, who, would, who would step up on the, those steps. We've studied before, you know, all the structure of the tabernacle and later the temple. It would become a more permanent version of it, but it's the same furnishings. They would walk up those steps up to the big bronze altar, and they would wave this grain before the Lord, which is kind of a demonstrating that this is an offering to God. And then they would follow the, the general pattern that we studied before of the grain offering where they would take a portion of that, mix it with oil and so on, and, and offer it on the altar as like a sweet incense to the Lord. The priests would then um, take and eat the, the remainder of that because those gifts given to God were given through the priesthood uh, for their provision. So a portion is burnt for God uh, to acknowledge Him, and then the rest goes to the priests. So this is what would happen, and this would be the initiation of the, the time of year when people could begin to eat of the new harvest. All right, so let's just kind of make a few uh, direct uh, structured observations here, I guess. The first thing we have here in the fruit, first fruits is it is a recognition of God's provision. You see that on the, particularly in the waving of the first sheaf of barley there in verses 9 through 11. You see in the middle of verse 10, when you come into the land and have this harvest, you bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day of the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So the first sheaf of the first harvest of the year, it's embedded in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, um, and it's an acknowledging of God as their provider. That's acknowledging God as their provider. 
There's been some debate over the centuries as to exactly which day this was to take place because it's a little confusing when you have the Passover being on a Sabbath, and then you have a special Sabbath that comes the next day as the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and at the end of that week you have another Sabbath that kind of bookends that week, and that's another holy convocation at a day on which they're supposed to do no work. So when it says on the day after the Sabbath the priests shall wave it, people have asked, which Sabbath? The day after the Passover, which is also a Sabbath, the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or is it the day after that day, or is it at the end of the week? And it's not quite crystal clear, is it, if you just go strictly by what's in the text? Well, so that's kind of interesting. Well, so I, so I, I went to the Jewish scholar on this one, and... Um, I won't read everything to you, but just a little portion here that, that I guess kind of maybe clears it up um, or makes it more confusing. I don't know. Uh, but he says, if it, it referred to the weekly Sabbath, as in Friday night to Saturday night, during the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then this would have been waived on Sunday. So that's the day after the Passover. But if the text referred to the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also a Sabbath day, the day for waving of the Omer would be variable depending on which day of the week, the first day the unleavened bread fell, and that has to do with the Jewish calendar. So, but essentially, it could be Monday. Um, the Sadducees held to the first option. The Pharisees took the second. After much wrangling, the Pharisaic position prevailed. Therefore, the date for the waving of the sheaf or the Omer uh, and the beginning to the count to Shavuot, which is the Pentecost festival, was established as Nisan 16, which is the day following the first day and the Sabbath of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. This day was accepted in the second temple days and is still followed today. So in other words, they took it to be the day after the day after the Sabbath. Does that make sense? Sabbath day? The, the Passover, rather. I should say the Passover Sabbath, the first day after that, the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, another Sabbath, they're saying that the, sh the sheaf gathering and waving was the next day after that, which for us would be Monday. Right? That's the tradition that, that was held to then for the longest time and seems to be continues to be the standard. The interesting thing about that is that doesn't have to really worry us because it's just another reminder that what they were doing is not doing something that is uh, mystically powerful. It doesn't have anything to do with equinoxes or, or any silly thing like that. It's all about the principle of what God wants them to do, which is to worship Him, to acknowledge Him as their provider. And so the important thing was that they did it, and that they did it in conjunction with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread at this, at this time of year. So we see the waving of the first sheaf of barley, and that is acknowledging particularly God as their provider. They are, before any of them partake, they take this and, and hold up this portion before God as if to say, you are the one who gave this to us, and we're acknowledging that with returning this portion. So it's the first, that's the idea of the first fruits, right? It's the very first taking before anybody else partakes. We see the, then what follows is the offering of harvest sacrifices. They wave the sheaf, but then 
they offer these three types of, of offerings or sacrifices that we have studied again at the beginning of our study in Leviticus. So we have these three, the burnt offering, which was always was, which is the lamb, the perfect one-year-old male lamb that's offered up as a burnt offering. And then there is a grain offering, and then there's the drink offering, which is a, a portion of wine taken from the newly harvested grapes as well. So we see the representation here of the produce of the land. We have, the, we have the lamb, which is the burnt offering, which is always consistently part of this celebration of the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread. But then we have the grain and the drink. So it's representing the, the plants that are growing, as, uh, both the, the grain and the produce, the, the grapes themselves. And that was sometimes um, mixed or a part of that drink offering was olive oil as well, also important crop for them at that time. So then these things are also offered up to God. So they represent the produce of the land, which is acknowledging God as their Lord. They're giving back to Him this portion. They recognize that these are not ours. These are, we didn't produce these ourselves entirely. They wouldn't have grown were it not for God's blessing, were not for His provision. He's the one who made plants grow and produce food that we can eat. He's the one who provides the things in the soil that make it that make it grow. He's the one who provides the rain so that the plants will actually grow and produce. These are a result of his blessing, and it's an acknowledgement as they give back the very first portion to him of these things to say, this is not mine to hoard to keep. So it's acknowledging God both as provider and as their Lord. He is ultimately the owner as the giver of these things to us. And that should be instructive to us. Secondly, we see the first fruits as an anticipation of God's blessing. There's an anticipation in all of this. It was a giving thanks for things yet to come. We see this in verse 14 where it says, you shall eat neither bread nor grain parched or fresh until the same day, until you have brought the offering to your God, and it is a statute forever uh, throughout your generations. So it, it is an act of faith in God's faithfulness. First of all, you do this first. No one else eats of any of the grain until this has been offered back to God. Now that's kind of an act of faith, and that should be something for us to reflect on, which we will do a little bit more in the moment. We'll think about that connection. But giving to God first, and that's the idea of first fruits. Not so much exactly the portion, but the principle of giving back to God first. It's an act of faith because it's trusting. If I give this to back to God, there's still going to be enough left for me. I can trust God. I can recognize that He's the source. Therefore, I can give some back to Him, and I'm not going to run short because He is the provider, and He's my Lord, and I'm acknowledging that. I'm not, I'm not standing on my own strength. I'm not making my own fortune. It's coming from God, so therefore I can leave things out there with an open hand before God. I don't have to cling to it. So yielding first produce is also kind of an expression of grateful expectation. So this is meant to teach then each generation to look for God's blessing. As it says at the end of, of verse 14, is a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. And we've seen this pattern before where God says this is, a, this is a statute for all your generations for years to come. Why? Because God wants parents and grandparents to transfer to their children and to their grandchildren 
faith in the one true and living God who can help them, the one who deserves their faith and their trust and their obedience. So he created these rituals, these traditions, these annual events, these weekly events, so that each generation can learn who is the one true and living God. What relationship should we have to Him? How should we understand Him in the way He relates to us? It was instructive. So this was teaching each generation to look for God's blessing, to look forward to the fact that that we receive from Him, therefore we can trust Him for what we will receive in the future. He will provide if we acknowledge Him as Lord. And there's also in this a foreshadowing of God's provision through Jesus Christ. There's a foreshadowing. We see that Jesus is actually called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in reference to those who are raised from the dead. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 19 through 23. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 through 23. I don't think I have that text in the slides, do I, gentlemen? So maybe I invite you to turn there if you can in your copy. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 through 23, I'd like to read that. First Corinthians 15, reading in verse 19, if in Christ, now this is in the middle of a theological argument from Paul, but you, you, can, you can pick it up, okay? If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if it's just, in other words, just kind of we just have a religious thing going on here to just kind of help us on our way, if that's all it is, then we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, that would be empty. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So the principle that we see here is that Jesus Christ is, from God's perspective, the first fruits, the first evidence. Just as that barley sheep was the first evidence of God's provision, and acknowledging that was acknowledging God's provision, then we, well, that's interesting. That's a little, little old there. <laughs> That, that evidence of God's first provision there was kind of the basis of the faith of God's continued provision, right? And now we see this in Jesus Christ where God offers up and, and, and the Scripture refers to Jesus as the first fruits of those raised from the dead. So there we have the first evidence of God's work of resurrection, of giving new life, eternal life. He did it in Jesus Christ, and so now Paul's argument is we can trust that he'll do it for us as well if we follow Christ. So because Jesus is the first to be raised from the dead, we can trust that we too can be raised from the dead, that the Father will follow through. So Jesus Christ is the first fruits of resurrection to life, victory over sin and death and hell. So it is the first indication of God, what God will do for those of us who belong to him through Jesus Christ. And so it is calling people to put their hope in God's plan. This whole process is calling people, I see we were trying to get the text up there for us. All right, thank you guys. 
this is a calling people to their hope in God's plan. Verse 19, once again, if you can find that, if in Christ we have hope. And Paul's saying we don't need hope only in this life religiously, but our real hope as in our anticipation, our expectation. This is not a wishing hope. This is a confident hope is that God will raise us from the dead if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. He's already demonstrated his power to do that through Jesus Christ. And so we can trust him to do that for us as well. So here's the summary of the outline. The waving of the sheaf of barley was acknowledging God as our provider. Uh, Well, for the people of Israel. But we can draw that principle. Offering harvest sacrifices, acknowledging God as their Lord. Offering back to him what he's given to us. It reminds me of the old, I don't know if you remember the old gospel song, Only a Sinner Saved by Grace. How many of you can remember that one? All right, good. So my favorite line in that, in that old gospel song is just this, this little snippet. Not have I gotten, but what I received. Not have I gotten, but what I've received. In other words, I don't have anything really that wasn't given to me. I can't take credit for anything, really. I can't be prideful and say, I've made my own way. Okay? I've, I've said it before. Frankie Blue Eyes got it all wrong when he said, I did it my way. It was the most arrogant, foolish song. Terribly catchy, but but just a horrible, horrible declaration of independence when in reality we have nothing good that wasn't given to us by God. Even the people who do not acknowledge God, that is still true. They may not acknowledge that the good things that they have have come from God, but He is indeed the Father of light in whom there is no shadow of turning. He is the one from whom every good and perfect gift comes. So life itself, the next breath, the next provision of a meal, the home you live in, the car you drive, the opportunities that you enjoy, the family and friends that you have, the freedoms that you have, every good and perfect gift comes from our Father in heaven. We have nothing that wasn't given to us. So who of us has any right or any basis, any foundation for arrogance in our life? If you are blessed with material things, not have you gotten but what you've received. It's been given to you. Oh, you can say, oh, I worked hard. I earned this. Who gave you the brain, the body, the opportunities, the connections to do that? Not have you gotten but what you've received. So perhaps we should consider this principle of first fruits in the same way where we take what God has offered, what God has given, and we offer back with an open hand and say, you know what, I'm I'm acknowledging first and foremost that this is ultimately from you, therefore it is yours. Take and do with these things what you will. And I'll anticipate that if I offer this up to you, you're still going to meet my needs. So when it comes to our own giving, our own principles, our own consideration of giving, while we're not instructed to give a strict tithe, that's not a bad standard, it's not a bad idea, 
But whatever you pray about, whatever you determine honestly before God, be faithful to do it. Remember that it all ultimately comes from Him. You can trust Him as your Lord. As you acknowledge Him as Lord with your possessions, you can trust Him for future blessings. And of course, always be thankful for that ultimate blessing of the eternal life to come. Remember that things here are not things to cling to. This is temporal. This stuff all burns one day. So let's not get too obsessed and focused with these material, temporal things. Remember, ultimately, Jesus Christ is the evidence of God's future blessing, the eternal blessing of eternal life. So this is a brief message today. It's probably good because my voice might not hold out much longer, but these things, let's look at these things to consider in, in conclusion. First of all, we need to be reminded regularly that God is the source of every blessing and provision. And this is why God built this into the, the annual events in Israel's life so that they would re, be reminded every year to stop, to pause, to do something significant that would force them to acknowledge, force them to remember that God is the source of every blessing and provision. Maybe we need to build some things like that into our own lives or in our families' lives. What can we do? I just I leave it to you to pray about that, to think about that, to discuss about that with your family. But are there things that you can do that will help you to remember and help you to instruct the next generation to remember to acknowledge God as provider and Lord in your life, the source of every blessing? Now, here's one good way to exercise our faith in His provision and in His faithfulness is to give back to Him first, not last. Sticking to that principle of the first fruits. You know, when the paycheck comes in, rather than writing all the bills first and going through all the budget and doing this, that, and the other thing like that, and then see, okay, what's left over? What can I give to God? We should really say, what should I give to God? And I'll trust Him with what's left over to cover the rest of the needs. That's the principle of first fruits. That's the idea. Offering up to God the very first and saying, I know that you're the one who provides, so I'll trust you for future blessing. I'll offer back to you a portion, an acknowledgement of your provision and your lordship in my life, and I'll trust you with the rest. So let me suggest that if you're not already doing that, you should prayerfully consider that it's an exercise of faith. Yeah, you might be concerned. Oh, I don't know. If I give this offering to the Lord, maybe I'm not going to be able to make it to the end of the month. Well, how far are you willing to trust God? Well, that's not, a, that's not, not suggesting foolishness. You're just going to give it all to the Lord and then expect Him to do some miracle to provide for you for the rest of it. But, but what you've determined prayerfully that should be the portion that you want to give to God how about you just do that first? Don't, don't worry. Don't do all the calculations and figure, oh, how much am I going to have left at the end of the month? Okay, you've made your commitment. Trust God. Give to Him first, not last. And thirdly, lastly, we can face death when it comes to that ultimate future blessing that we can trust God with. We can face death even with confidence knowing that because God raised Jesus from the grave as the first fruits. He will do the same for us. 
we have that future hope, that certain anticipation. I would like to read First uh, Peter chapter one verses three through nine, and this is in the slides I've provided. I'll read this kind of in conclusion as we consider this text. Now, Peter is writing to believers who are beleaguered by opposition of all sorts, religious, social, governmental. Uh, they, they were suffering for their faith. They were enduring all kinds of trials and troubles if they're being faithful to Jesus Christ. And so Peter writes to them and says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that first fruits from the dead. We are born to a new life, to a living hope through that resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's the issue of what treasure do you treasure the most? Do you treasure the treasure that can rust and decay, be lost with a stock market crash, the loss of a job, medical expenses? Are you going to put all your trust in those things that you can't take with you? Peter says, we have an inheritance through Christ, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's protected in the best vault of the universe in heaven for you. Now, the who refers back to us again. It says, He has caused us to be born again, uh, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And so your salvation also, your very future eternal life is secure. It's being guarded through our faith. So if you trust God, He protects. He clings to you. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So he's acknowledging the Christian life doesn't have, is, may not be easy in this world. But you can still rejoice, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, the test, I like that expression, the tested genuineness of your faith. Is that, is that true of us when it's tested? Does your faith prove to be genuine? It's when the trials come, right? It's easy to, to say, I trust God, I love God, when everything's going very smoothly. But it's when we're under pressure for our faith that its genuineness is tested. Okay? So he says, even maybe for a while you endure trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which by the way, in this aside, it's more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. But this genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not yet seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. There's a lot there, but what a beautiful thing. Enduring in faith because you can trust that God will fulfill His promises, His plan for you, and He has demonstrated that by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And so it is through faith in Him and what has already been achieved there that your faith, though tested, can prove to be genuine and will ultimately result in this inexpressible glory in heaven. Your salvation is secure as long as you cling to your faith in Jesus Christ. Then you will one day see that glory that is brought about by your tested, enduring faith. It will bring God glory, and you will bask in that glory with Him as He rewards you for your faithfulness. What great words to look forward to hearing one day. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I believe it begins at a review of how we view the things of this world. The principle of first fruits reminds us to recognize that everything ultimately comes from God, therefore it should be held with an open hand before God. We can trust His faithfulness. So we need to build our faith in His faithfulness because He has demonstrated before His faithfulness and He's demonstrated through Christ what we can look forward to in the future regardless of the trials of this world. Let's, help, let's ask God to help us with that, that we can live that first fruits kind of lifestyle that acknowledges Him as provider and Lord and Savior. Let's pray.